Are you tired of being broke? Do you struggle with debt? Are you ready for a change? If so, you found the right place. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. My name is Eric, and I invite you to join me and my co-hosts, Keith and Nick, as we reveal the truth about how to succeed financially. Whether you're just beginning your journey or have many miles behind you, we're here to help. If you would like to follow or contact us, visit propersense.com. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. I'm Keith, and I'm back today with my co-host, Eric. And today we've got an interesting topic. We're going to be discussing the basics of investing. Now, before we hop into that, we sort of want to preface this to you guys and, and say that, you know, this is not personalized investing advice and that we are not your financial advisors. We're just a couple of dudes talking about what we do. Uh, and what we like to do. So, uh, Eric, what's going on in your world? Just living the dream. Got a sick dog, got a sick kid, trying to manage that, record a podcast, you know, the things that uh, everybody wants to be doing. Living the life on this Tuesday morning. You know, you probably got a bunch of beautiful sunshine down there in Arizona. For the last two weeks, it's been, shoot, we hit 80 degrees last week for about four days straight. Um, So it's been nice, but all of a sudden the honeydews come out and uh, it's, it's yard work, it's garage cleaning, it's spring cleaning, it's that time of the year, but it always feels better as you kind of start checking some of that off your list. Yeah, I bet. Up there in the Pacific Northwest, you got to deal with a lot of maintenance, especially wood things. I remember that. It was wood fences growing mold or moss and all that mumbo jumbo. You got you to gotta stay on top of it, otherwise it takes over your house and your yard. Yeah, it can, uh, it can rot you away. And in fact, that's what I spent my weekend doing is uh, pressure washing one inch at a time of my deck, getting all the green stuff off and reapplying the stain just to have to do it again next year. But um, anyway, I'm excited to talk about today's topic. Just, you know, the basics of investing. And, you know, this is going to be a real high view of, of what's going on really for beginners, but that's okay because the first step to kind of your fruitful future is is education and understanding these things. And sometimes these things can be scary. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. And, and so, the best thing to do is to learn some and then just start. Start small, start incremental. And uh, we're joined, as I said, with Eric today, who's got a, a deep knowledge on this topic. But we're going to save some of the specificity and the advanced uh, discussion for later podcasts. Um, but today, uh, let's just touch base on some on some general investing principles and give some people some uh, perspective and some some guidance uh, if they decided that they wanted to take the first step and, and figuring this game out. So let's start with the uh, easy low-hanging fruit here, Eric. A lot of people are thinking, ah, investing's for the rich. I've got too much uh, going on right now with family and kids and, and just trying to make ends meet, maybe trying to save an emergency fund or get out of debt. How much money is needed to begin investing. And we'll talk about when it's appropriate and what we should be doing first. But just in general, do you need a million dollars to start thinking that you need that now you can play in the stock market or start looking at ETFs? That's a great question. And I think that is confusing for a lot of people. They think that the stock market is a rich person's game or things of that sort. And the truth is, is that's actually one of the biggest tools to get rich or to build wealth. 
is using things like the stock market and investing in, in appreciating assets. And the truth is, is that you don't need really anything. You could start with even a dollar. You can open up count, accounts nowadays with, uh, with zero deposit. You can just get the account started, figure out the tools, see the infrastructure inside, find the mobile app, see what works for you and what feels comfortable. And then as you start to shave off a little bit of money out of your monthly budget, even if it's just 25 or 50 bucks, and you start moving that over into your investment accounts for long-term wealth building, you can start really with practically nothing. It's, it's very approachable nowadays. And to give you an example, both of my kids are in elementary school and they each have what's called a taxable brokerage account. So they have, they, we don't call it allowance, we call it commissions for jobs in our house, but then they, so they get a commission every week if they do their jobs. And then they also get periodic funds from, you know, grandparents and family members for birthdays and Christmases and things like that. And we've got them into the habit where they take half of everything that they get, half of it goes into their investment account, and half of it goes into their spending account, basically. So if they want to buy Robux on, on Roblox, or if they want to go to the store and pick out a toy or save for a new bike or video game, then that's what that money's for. And so if my kids can do it with five bucks a week, then anybody can do it with just about any amount of money to get started. Yeah, I think that's that's excellent. My kids are a little bit younger, but the commission structure and getting them involved in investing at an early age, you know, that's everything. Just just having a basic understanding of how this stuff works, uh, even from such a young age, that's that's great. I wonder if I can take that and, and bribe my four-year-old with a commission every time she uh, takes a dump on the toilet instead of in her pants, but, but that might be a hard sell. I believe those are referred to as potty pops, and you want to focus in the candy world when you're talking about three and four-year-olds, as far as I remember. Yes, you're exactly right. Uh, jars of candy and lollipops, and now with the summer heat, it's popsicles after, after a successful bathroom break. But anyway, getting back, you know, you nailed on something really important there, and it's not about the amount of money, you know, with, with indexes and things like that. You're not buying whole stocks, even in cryptocurrency. You're not buying whole coins. You know, a dollar uh, can get you started. And that's the important thing I think to take away here is to just get started because it's it's the cloak uh, of, of war, so to speak, when it comes to investing that, that points people away from it, thinking that they don't understand it, that they can't possibly understand it. But as we're going to talk about here through investment accounts and, and how to do this, it's become easier and more transparent than ever for everybody to be participating in this and understand how to do it. So, so again, just getting started, I think, is the big ticket here. I opened my first investment account many, many years ago. It was just before my freshman year in college. I'd made some money up north working on some tugboats in Alaska and, uh, and wanted to get in the game and, and sort of understand how this works. And that was the biggest step for me was just finding an investment account, spending the afternoon, deciding who I wanted to go through. Uh, I, I decided on an online uh, account through a bank there and, and it was super easy to just connect a checking account, move dollars over and get started. So Eric, Tell us about how you got started in investing, and then let's talk a little more deeply about how people should think about deciding what investment account works for them. So I think my introduction to investing, or better yet, my first experience with investing is probably similar for a lot of people. Mine first came through the job that I had out of college, and we had a 401k option to set up. And so... My first introduction was sort of the standard route, getting a job, 
setting up the 401k. I knew enough or had heard enough that you want to probably take advantage of the company match, which mine had a small one. And so I did that. And that was pretty much my my first step into that world. So, you know, as far as choosing an investment account, I think that for most people, they're probably introduced in a typical way, either through their employer with a 401k or perhaps setting up an IRA and putting money into it that way. Usually it's it's more of a long-term investment opportunity for retirement. Um, once people kind of get the idea that, oh, retirement is going to come and we need to be planning for that. So I think as far as choosing them, I think a lot of times they choose you. When you move into the idea of taxable brokerage accounts, which is more suited for people that have money outside of retirement or are saving for different long-term goals that they don't want to wait till they're 65 to access it. You know, now you're talking about a different beast. And as far as choosing one, I think the important thing is just, just start, just pick one, pick one. Uh, you know, a lot of them, you've got your Charles Schwab's, you've got your TD Ameritrade's, you've got your Fidelity's. Those are great places to start. You can set up an account, and you can fool around with the mobile app, go online, get used to it, see the resources they have, and just find the one that feels the most comfortable. Because at the end of the day, even if you decide you don't like it after you've started investing, you can always transfer your assets to another bank and establish it over there. You know, you're making a good distinction there. And as we're at 30,000 feet here, it might be appropriate to drill this down. You know, we're talking about investing. It's a very broad subject. Uh, what we're kind of talking about here is you guys may already be investing in the markets through your 401ks uh, at work. Maybe you have a college savings account for your, for your kids, which we'll talk about a little bit. Eric mentioned the IRAs and the Roth IRAs. When, when I'm kind of referring to choosing an investing account, we're kind of going outside of that and, and saying, okay, maybe you have some extra dollars now that you want to get in uh, and, and applying outside of just your retirement savings for growth opportunities. And so that then begs the question, Eric, when is it a good time uh, and in what order to be thinking about these different avenues of investing, right? So everybody outside of school, if they get a good job, hopefully they've got a 401k program. And I think that we've got some opinions on how to utilize that, how to understand the matching system. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about that, when to move into an IRA, uh, into college savings, uh, and, and all while also setting up maybe a personalized investment account through Charles Schwab where you can set extra dollars in and sort of play around in the market a little bit as well. So uh, do you have sort of a process in that, kind of the same way that you have a process in how you build your budget and how you pay down debt? Yeah, there's a lot of theories around this. And as we said in the beginning, this isn't necessarily personalized advice. It's more generalized advice for people looking to gain a deeper understanding or looking to get in for the first time. But there are some pretty tried and true processes that a lot of uh, financial planners and, and um, money experts over the years have arrived at, at as a good starting point. And it usually goes like this. So if you take a typical working individual that has a 401k and that company has a match, that match amount is usually considered the first dollars you should go after because it's an immediate return on your money. So, you know, sometimes they do 50% of what you put in. Sometimes they do, they match dollar for dollar up to a certain percentage. But let's say that I can match dollar for- Why, why don't you explain, yeah, why don't you explain specifically what matching means before continuing? Sure. So a match on a company 401k, there's a few different ways they do it, but the primary function is like this. 
they'll set a match amount. So they will match you, they'll call it dollar for dollar up to usually a certain percentage of your income. So if you make, let's say $50,000 and they match you up to 6% of your income, if you put in $3,000 that year, they will put in another $3,000. So your $3,000 investment just became $6,000 and you didn't have to do anything, just put it in there. And I've been looking all over the place for 100% immediate return on my money and they're very hard to find. So when you're calculating how much you wanna be setting aside, generally the company 401k match is going to be the best bang for the buck out of the, out of the gate. Then you oftentimes want to move over to either a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, and that'll depend on your own personal situation. Sometimes you won't qualify to put into a Roth or get tax deductions on the traditional, but either way, you generally want to move over there. And then you want to start talking about setting aside money for college or going back and maxing out your 401k for the annual total limit on the contribution there. But it's not as simple as just putting it all into your 401k because there are tax benefits to putting it into other ones at certain times. And so that's the important thing to understand. We're not gonna dive into the nuts and bolts of tax law right now, but there is a pattern in which you can put things in. It generally starts with the match, moving over into Roths and traditionals. You can go back and fill out your 401k and then start looking at things like uh, college savings. And speaking of college sa savings, I would like to make one note. Sometimes people prioritize college savings a little too much over their own retirement. And that's a dangerous thing to get into because worst case scenario, you and your kids can borrow to go to college, but you can't borrow for retirement. So make sure that you're on track for your own retirement plans before funneling a bunch of money into your kids' um, college savings. Yeah, I would agree with that order, and I think that that's sort of the standard uh, out there, and it's the easiest for a lot of people to, to start putting money away for their retirement through their 401ks and things like that. And again, without diving too much into the tax implications of all of these things and the timing, which we can do you know, at a later podcast, it, it's important to understand that a lot of this is pre-tax dollars, and it kind of removes that behavioral bias. So you have to understand your propensity uh, to save and to invest and to move dollars appropriately versus uh, spending, you know, on, on fancy dinners and fancy cars and things like that. And so the 401k and the matching portion of it, it's nice because it comes out of your paycheck oftentimes before you even realize it or see it. And so the money that actually hits your checking account, that is now your dollars to sort of allocate. And it's sort of happening in the back end. And you'll hear us talk a lot about this automation of your financing, which is so important to just let things kind of work in the background and, and kind of forget about them as if they're not even yours and, and set them aside for future growth and, and, and uh, compounding and, and let time be on, on your side in that regard. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on, but just the, uh, the automation of it will help substantially. Yeah, that's a great point. Another thing I like about the money that goes into things like a 401k or a traditional IRA is if you're concerned, which you should be, about early withdrawal penalties and paying large tax liability or having large tax liabilities, 
then it prevents you from tapping into that money. Where if you skip over your tax advantaged accounts, which is a bad idea to do, and you put everything in a taxable brokerage account, that money's always just one trade and one transfer away from a bad decision. So, you know, if you have $50,000 sitting in a taxable account because you weren't putting any into your retirement accounts, and you get on a whim and you want to go buy a new sports car, all you got to do is sell that stock, pay the taxes, transfer it to your bank, and now you're making you know a bad financial decision. And, and so there is no barrier there to keep you from doing that. And finally, you know the benefits to, especially in 401k, is a lot of the investment management is, is handled for you on, you know, your, your company has uh, people that are responsible for that. So now when we kind of switch gears after you've maxed out certain retirement accounts, uh, and are looking at these, what Eric just referred to as taxable brokerage accounts, it'll be important to understand the tax implications, but even more important than that is understanding what it means to invest in stocks. Eric, talk to us about what is a stock? What if you can't afford to buy a whole stock? And then let's talk about the difference between ETFs and funds and indexes and how that all kind of comes needs to come into play when people are thinking about getting into this. Sure. So we'll take a real high level approach here. There's a lot of nuance when you get into the details. But in general, when you buy a stock of a company, you are buying a small piece of that company. You own it. You are now called a shareholder and the entire shareholder world of that company makes up the owners of that company. So in a private business, there's generally one or two or 10 or there could be 50 different owners but it's all the, the you can't buy into it. In a publicly traded company, you can go to the stock market exchanges, usually through your brokers, and you would buy shares of a company and now they're in your portfolio. And what that means for you as a shareholder is you're gonna go, your, the value of your shares are gonna go up and down with the market price of that company. So in general, when the company's doing well and it's making more money and it's growing, the stock price tends to go up. When it's not doing so well or getting into legal trouble, then it tends to go the other direction. One of the cool things about owning a company is that you get access to some of their profits and they issue it out oftentimes in dividends. And so on a quarterly basis, companies often will issue a dividend. And so they'll take part of their profits, they'll divide it out, and they'll send it out to the shareholders in the direct proportion to how many you own. So you literally get money deposited into your brokerage account on that quarterly basis. Now you can automatically have it go back in and buy more shares, but it's just something that, that's the whole principle. That's the idea of buying an asset that either appreciates or pays you or does both. And that's the benefit of that, of owning an individual stock. Now, a lot of people might think that uh, investing in these brokerage accounts means individually trading single stocks. Um, and, and there's ways to do that, uh, day trading or having to, to monitor the market and sell when it's high and buy when it's low. And, and, and it could be daunting deciding which companies and things that you have to buy in. Now, most uh, diversified portfolios will take into consideration certain big companies, blue chip companies, you know, the Amazon, some Microsoft, things like that. And you, and you certainly will be buying into those individual stocks. But there is, there is ways now that a, a small individual investor can get in and, and sort of play the market broadly without buying a whole bunch of individual stocks. Uh, and this is done through, through funds, 
uh, ETF specifically, electronically traded funds, um, indexes, mutual funds, all these can be sort of daunting. So talk to us about what buying into one of those funds means versus buying into a singular stock. Let me start by saying for the vast majority of people, buying individual stocks, buying individual companies is just a bad idea. It takes mountains of research, a vast amount of time, a deep understanding of these businesses to do well over a long period of time buying individual shares. It's just, that's just the way that it is. If it's your hobby and that's what you're into and you love that, then have at it. Um, some people will recommend if it's just an itch, you got to scratch, make sure that at least 90% of your portfolio is invested the right way for long-term wealth building. And then you can dabble in some individual stocks here and there on the side. But the big risk from buying individual stocks is you don't have what's called diversification. And diversification means owning different businesses and in different industries and sectors. So that way, when one might be doing really bad, other ones are doing well. And so it sort of balances it out. And if you look at something like the S&P 500 over the last 30 years, you'll see all of these peaks and valleys when you zoom in. But when you zoom out, there's a general upward trend that over the long term, tends to go up. And so what we have is we have things like mutual funds and we have, uh, um, it's kind of its, its younger brother, uh, newer, newer to the field is the ETF, exchange traded fund. And what those are is they are baskets of stocks. So if I have $10,000 to invest and I wanna have a diversified portfolio, I'd probably need to buy between 20 and 30 individual companies across different sectors to have a reasonably okay diversified portfolio. Well, that's difficult with 10,000 bucks. It's it, now you have all these companies you got to manage, you got to know when to uh, when to shave these profits off. It gets very convoluted. So with an ETF, you can buy an ETF that tracks a specific index like the S&P 500. So instead of trying to build your own diversified portfolio, you buy into this ETF that automatically means you own tiny little slivers of almost all of the companies in that index. So you've immediately become diversified and now you're riding with the overall market as opposed to living and dying by a handful of smaller uh, or uh, smaller holdings with individual stocks. And when you first jump into this world, you're, you're going to hear lots of people talking about mutual funds or index funds or ETFs, as Eric was saying. Uh, and I made a mistake earlier when I said electronic versus exchange. So forgive me for that. Uh, but a good way to think about this is, as Eric was saying, indexes and ETFs, they seek market average returns, as Eric was saying, over the aggregate of what the market is doing. Uh, it's a good stable, diversified way uh, to seek returns over the long run. Whereas mutual funds tend to try to outperform. And so without getting too deep into this, it's gonna be very important to understand that keeping it simple uh, is, is most important and most prudent because Eric alluded to the tax implications of buying, selling, capital gains. Also, things like mutual funds, and, and we're gonna get into uh, portfolio managers and things in a little while, you know, a lot of these are actively managed and they take fees and that can eat into your overall returns over time. So if, so if on average, the stock markets are producing six, seven, eight percent, when you start talking about actively managed uh, assets and fees upwards of one percent, two percent, that's just eating into your overall uh, growth and profit. And over the long run, as we talk more about compound interest, you'll see that that can have a very negative adverse effect. 
So keeping it simple, keeping it diversified, and, uh, and seeking market average returns is, is a prudent long-term strategy. Absolutely. Now, there are mutual funds that track indexes just like ETFs, but uh, you just have to be very diligent about understanding the fees that you're paying because over an entire investing career, so let's say you start at 25 and you'll invest more than likely until you die, but let's say you're retiring at 65, just that 40-year time window a 2% return or a 2% fee on your portfolio, whether it's a management fee or whether it's a uh, fees baked into mutual funds that you own, it can erode hundreds of thousands of dollars of growth over the life of it. And just for, you know, most people don't even really think about it, but if you have a million dollar portfolio and you're paying a 2% fee, you're paying $20,000 a year for whatever it is, whether it's management fee or whether it's mutual fund fees. Think about, look through your monthly expenses or your annual expenses and find something else besides maybe your mortgage that you spend $20,000 a year on. And when you get into things like ETFs that are tracking the general market, uh, there's other considerations in your diversification, more uh, specifically to your risk propensity uh, and how you allocate that portfolio. And so let's talk a little bit about about that generally and how that might change as you get older. So there's this thing called your risk profile that has to be considered heavily when making investment decisions, even in ETFs. It, it, it essentially is taking risk-free assets with risky assets and, and putting them together. Some will put it on a capital allocation line. Uh, that's a little bit more advanced, but the idea is to think about your goals, uh, your age, your your timeline to retirement or your timeline to let these things grow uh taking into consideration we keep saying compound interest um so so let's talk a little bit about risk allocation and how a 20 year old should diversify and set up their portfolio allocations versus say a 40 or somebody on the verge of retirement portfolio allocation is a huge part of long-term not only retirement but just wealth building in general and you touched on it, talking about risk profiles, and that's a term that gets thrown around all the time. The easiest way to think about it is if you're younger, you have longer periods of time to ride out the fluctuations of the market so you can be riskier. If you're older and you've accumulated a lot, you're more likely wanting to preserve what you've already accumulated, so you wanna be a little bit more conservative. Now, that's a very, very general rule. There's people that are in their 20s that only buy bonds. There's people in their 60s and 70s that have never owned a bond in their life. So understanding your risk profile, your time horizon, those are huge parts of figuring out your proper allocation. So. At the base level, a portfolio allocation will be divided into stocks and bonds. When you're younger, you tend to have less bonds, more stocks, because they have higher growth return rate, and generally, historically, and they're also a little riskier. As you get older, you start to shift more into bonds because then it stabilizes, it lowers the growth rate, but it stabilizes the losses. So when the stock market takes a dive, we enter a three or four year bear market, the bonds are what kind of add the, the counterbalance to that. So, you know, there's a lot of rules of thumb. Probably the most basic one is age in bonds. So if you're 25, they'd say, you know, have 25% of your overall portfolio in bonds, have 75% in stocks. 
In modern times, there's a lot of questions about whether that process holds up now that we have basically zero percent interest rates, so bonds aren't really paying anything. But uh, you know that that's important because the, it's a sliding scale. As you get older, you want to move more into the conservative realm generally, so that way you're preserving preserving the capital you've already built versus trying to maximize the overall gain. It's also really important to think about your time horizon for money that you're going to invest. So when we're talking about retirement, so things going into your 401k, your IRAs, it, it's a little bit easier because we know for, especially if you're younger, that's a long ways off. So you can just kind of ignore it and you know that it's going to go up and down and up and down and hopefully over time it just continues to go up in the long term. When you're talking about shorter term money, so let's say you're talking about um, saving for a down payment on a house, right? You want to save 50,000 bucks and you want to buy the house in the next two or three years. Some people might think, oh yeah, I'm going to throw it in the stock market. Uh, Things have been going well. We could end up only having to save 30,000 and get the whole 50. And that's true. That might actually happen, but the opposite might happen too. So you might be getting close to that, that goal and then all of a sudden, the market turns and starts to go down for months on end. And now that money you've set aside for your home is continuously getting less and less and less and less. And the time horizon for when you needed access to that money is getting closer. And so your choice at that point is do you take it out and and deal with the loss? Do you push off buying your home? Do you buy a smaller house? You know, that's why it's important to make sure that any money that you're investing in stocks for the long term are actually for the long term and not for something that in the next year or two you might need to draw on because that's generally accepted. That's not a long enough time horizon to put money into the market for. And we keep talking about time horizon and long time horizons and, and we're kind of inferring that that's a good thing. And it it's for a couple of reasons because the longer you have to save, the more money you can pile up. So that's that's pretty apparent. But more importantly, when we're talking about time horizon and not touching the money and let it do what it's going to do, we're referring to this thing called compound interest. It's been referred uh, as the eighth wonder of the world because it's just that powerful. Eric, for those listening that think that they understand it or maybe don't have any understanding of what compound interest means, talk to us a little bit about that and, and the true power over 10, 20, 30 years of it. Well, let's put it this way. Einstein called compound interest the eighth wonder of the world. And it's the foundation of how Warren Buffett was able to become so successful is the idea that your money earns money and then that money earns money and that earns money and that earns money. And when you do that over a long period of time, it becomes very powerful. So if I take $100 and I earn 10% on it, well, now I've just turned that into $110. But that $110, the next year turns, I get another 11, so that becomes 121. So every time it compounds, the amount you're gaining is going up and up and up and up and up and up. Now, compounding interest can work the negative or the opposite way too, but the main focus is that the longer you can leave it in, the more dividends you're gonna make, the more growth you're gonna get, and then that begets more growth and more dividends and more and more and more to where when you're in the later stage of your earning and accumulating years, you know, if you've amassed, let's say a million dollars and you gain a 10% return in the market that year, you just made $100,000 that year. So, you know, there becomes a point if you're diligent and you do it consistently where your money begins to make more money than you can. And that's 
where financial freedom starts to kick in, when your money works for you instead of you working for your money. And I think that's the overall principle that everybody should be shooting for. And the time horizon, as we've said, greatly affects that. So if you are 30 and you plan to wait until you're 35, that can have drastic implications on the amount of money that you've saved by retirement because it's sort of, well, it compounds, it's, it's exponential. And so over the time horizon, the longer it goes, the more that it's growing and growing. So it might start a little bit slower, 10 years, you can gain some wealth, 20 years, even an extra five years at the end of retirement can be the difference of millions of dollars because it sort of hockey sticks towards the end of it. So the longer your money can be in working for you, it's exponential and it's, and it's better. And so if, if, you're, if you're pushing off saving for retirement, oh, I'm still young, uh, I can do it when I'm 35 or I can do it when I'm 40, uh, we are here to say that general knowledge says that that is a bad financial plan. It's easy to visualize it by just going on and finding, just Google for a compound interest calculator, and you can do a couple tests. See what it's like if you put in $1,000 a month for 40 years. See what it's like if you put in $1,000 a month for 30 years, 20 years, so on and so forth, and see how dramatic the difference is. So even though it's only 10 years, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in difference because you didn't have because you lost those 10 years of compounding. Now there is other options to get into the market. We've talked a little bit about uh, managers managing your portfolio and things like that. Eric, let's talk about financial advisors. Uh, a lot of people are going to have different opinions on this. Uh, I think that it comes down to situations and what you're trying to accomplish. What do you do? What do you recommend for the people beginning, just starting out, or what would you say to them? And when, if ever, is it appropriate to actually bring on professional assistance? If you're just starting out, uh, let's say you're investing through your 401k or something um, in the beginning, it's probably not as important as long as you just do some basic research and make sure you're in the right uh, funds or ETFs, as long as you're just piling up that money. Um, you can even, if you're getting into a taxable brokerage account and you're starting that process, a lot of them have what are called robo-advisors now, where you just answer some basic questions, they figure out your risk tolerance, your timeline, and they'll, they'll do a really good job of picking funds to put your fu uh, money in for you. So it's not really that important in the beginning. But as you get older, your financial situation tends to get more complicated, right? So you start off, you get your first job out of college. Pretty soon you might get married. Now you're talking about buying a house. Now you got kids. You're thinking about college savings. You might want to start a business. You've got uh, you've got a health savings account maybe that you want to fit into the mix. You know now things start to get a little bit more complicated. And if you feel like you're starting to get a little bit out over your skis, there's nothing wrong than with going out and seeking a financial advisor. Now that being said, the range of quality you're going to get in the financial advisor world is very wide. So generally, you don't want to go walk into a bank like Wells Fargo or Bank of America and just sit down with their financial advisor because they're not what's called a fiduciary. They are not obligated to do what's best for you and your outcome. What they are actually are is they're primarily salespeople. So they're going to put you into funds that their bank owns so that way they get the management fees. They might be charging you a percent or even more on top of the fees that the mutual funds or whatever funds they're putting you in are. I've had, um, I've had family members that have worked with ones where they meet every single quarter and they go and they buy and they sell and they move things around and they charge them fees for all of that. 
And it's an entire industry over there that's built around just getting as much fees from you as they can. Now on the flip side, we have what are called fiduciary financial advisors that are obligated in, to do what's best for their clients. And the important thing when you're looking for ones like that is you need to be looking at the fee structure because anything at a percent or higher, just, just don't even mess around with it because those types of percentages, although they sound small, when you're talking about a six, seven, eight percent gain on an average over a year, and then you count inflation and then you add the fees, it really starts to erode the long-term ability for your money to grow. So if you are getting that point where you're starting to get a little bit overwhelmed or you got to start thinking about tax planning and making sure you're putting things into the right accounts and how you want to draw it out when you get closer to retirement and you're looking for an advisor, look for a fiduciary with low fees. Okay, so let's say we've dropped a bunch of money into, let's say an ETF, and we're periodically dumping more money into it. We've got plans we're in our early 30s, what have you. We've got plans to leave it in there for the long haul. Uh, enjoy compounding as it goes. We're, we're periodically dropping money in, which is called dollar cost averaging. How important is it to still be paying attention to your allocation, right? We talked about portfolio allocation and the monies that you dropped in are, are gonna be in it for the long run, but that doesn't mean that the asset allocation has to stay the same. Things change. You talked about saving for a house. Maybe you've got children, maybe you're nearing retirement. So it must be important to be paying attention and be making the correct diversification and risk adjustments over time. Uh, what does that process sort of look like to you, Eric? So it's very circumstantial. It's gonna depend a lot on your own personal situation, uh, your own tolerance, your own habits. Uh, in general, setting it and forgetting it is better than setting it and then taking it out and moving it around and all that. But if on the other side, if you're also the type of person that stresses out every time the market goes down by 10%, you know, and your $100,000 turned into $90,000, you know, th then it's probably better to maybe pick up your statements once a quarter and just make sure everything's on the up and up. Completely ignoring it is probably not the right move. You want to at least revisit it maybe on an annual basis. Make sure that portfolio allocation we talked about before is still in line. So let's say you're doing 20% bonds and 80% stocks and the stock market has been on a tear. Well, next year you're going to find that you have a lot more as a percentage in stocks than you do in bonds. And if your goal is to stay at that allocation, that's where you would move things around and uh, rebalance. But, you know, and on top of that, you kind of touched on it, life changes, right? So your goals when you're 30 are often different than when you're 40, than when you're 50, than when you're 52. You know, kids come into the mix, everything changes, retirement comes around, things change dramatically at that point too. So it's probably best at a minimum to be checking on things at least once a year. I like to do at least a, every quarter, make sure everything's balanced and appropriate, uh, but don't just ignore it. But at the same time, once it's in, let it do its, th let it do its thing and let compounding work its magic. All right, Eric, we've, we've covered a lot. Uh, we stayed pretty high, about 30,000 feet on this very uh, deep topic that we'll get into more. But, but is there any final thoughts or key takeaways that people listening uh, should walk away from today? Yeah, I think it's important, especially if you're younger. Well, it doesn't matter really what age. If you haven't started, start. Whatever that looks like. Even if it's 25 bucks a week, cancel your cable bill and put 70 bucks in there a month. Just get going because once you have a little bit of momentum, it'll start to feed itself and it'll start to build on itself. You'll get excited about it. 
you'll want to put more in, you'll start learning more about the market, and then you'll realize that it, it is very approachable for the average person. There's not, there's no reason why anybody can't be investing for the long term. It might seem daunting, it might seem like it's a rich man's game, but it's really not. It's for everybody, and if you have any plan on building any long-term wealth, it's one of the simplest vehicles to use, and it's, it's important to just keep going. So start early, keep it going, keep it reasonably balanced, stick with index funds and things that are going to track the market in general, and then as you learn more, you can expand into some of those more advanced techniques or other asset classes that uh, might be a little bit more complicated or nuanced. There it is. Taking time to educate yourselves of the basics of investing is the first step to a fruitful future. So be curious, keep learning, and remember, always be compounding. Listen in on the next Proper Sense podcast where we will continue to explore more advanced investing topics as well as all other things financial. And as always, check us out at propersense.com.